1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Nick Sheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Lynette Chua, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law in the National University of Singapore, on her first book, Mobilizing Gay Singapore. Rights and Resistance in an Authoritarian State, published in 2014 by NUS Press and Temple University Press. Singapore has a well-deserved reputation as a state that stifles dissent and polices activism. But as Chua shows in this highly readable account of one community's efforts to mobilise for rights, repressive government always encounters resistance, even if the forms that it takes are not manifest. Turning away from social movement theory that tends to valorize public protest and other forms of highly visible contentious politics, she tells another story, a story of contingent, incremental gains through strategic adaptation. This program of careful, discrete tactics she labels pragmatic resistance. I'll leave it to Lynette to explain what she means by this term, but suffice it to say that mobilising Gay Singapore is not just a finely researched account of how a contemporary political movement has emerged and grown in a modern Southeast Asian state. The book also has much to recommend it to listeners interested in legal and political resistance to authoritarianism and in social movements more generally. I hope you enjoy the interview. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're joining Lynette Chua to discuss her new book, Mobilizing Gay Singapore, Rights and Resistance in an Authoritarian State. Lynette, welcome to the show. Hello. So I'd like to ask you if you can begin by saying a little bit about how you came to this topic of um, mobilizing gay rights under authoritarianism, a bit about your yourself and your intellectual interests, and then we'll turn to the contents of the book after that.
0: Okay. Um, this project started out when I was... Um, at UC Berkeley, um, I initially was interested actually in the, uh, in the women's rights movements in various Southeast Asian countries, including, well, particularly Malaysia and Singapore. But after I did some preliminary, uh, background research on those two places, I noticed that, um, the, the main groups working on women's rights in those two countries actually paid very little attention to um, sexual minorities or LGBT rights. So I was quite curious as to uh, who's actually addressing these issues. If there are other groups that uh, I have not noticed who are working on these issues. And so I started to turn my attention more specifically toward uh, groups that worked on sexual minority rights rather than women's uh, women's rights. And, you know, and, uh, and I realized that they are, they are if at least from my disciplinary background in terms of uh, law and society research, there has been um, less attention focused on how activists in uh, non-Western liberal democracies, how they go around um, making claims for sexual minorities and, and organizing collectively. So that was the um, initial motivation as to why I turned my attention to the issue of um, uh, mobilize uh, of, of um, sexual minority rights and particularly on you know issues on their collective mobilization um, and that and, and so the field work actually started uh, i mean prior to two thousand and nine I was doing a lot of background research I also did some preliminary field work which was actually which actually involved uh, Also, uh, you know, uh, some preliminary interviews with women's rights activists. This was back in 2006, (laughs) seemed like a long time ago. But then uh, toward 2009, uh, my project really crystallized around sexual minorities uh, and, uh, you know, the gay rights movement, particularly in Singapore. And so uh, in 2009, I really embarked on the uh, fieldwork, most of the fieldwork, in starting in 2009. So as somebody who is uh, trained uh, in uh, law and society, coming from uh, Berkeley's uh, Jurisprudence and Social Policy program background, um, I was really motivated to look at how, uh, given the uh, political and legal conditions that activists face in a place like Singapore, meaning that you know, there are lesser civil political liberties that they have uh, to enable collective mobilization. Under those circumstances, how then do they uh, go around, go about making their claims as a group of people representing a, 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 a population that's been seen as marginalized and also discriminated uh, against? What really intrigued me was... Um, the, you know act, their counterpart activists, for instance, in liberal democracies like the United States, when they mobilize on issues of gay rights, they often take for granted certain forms of civil political liberties, the right to assemble, uh, the freedom of association, and so on. And so they don't have to usually worry about these issues, whereas the activists in the context like Singapore, um, in the process of making claims on gay rights or working on issues that concern uh, sexual minorities, such as doing outreach work or giving or providing community, community service or social support. Uh, they also have to worry about these basic, uh, whether they're infringing any restrictions on basic civil political liberty. So that adds another layer of texture and nuance to understanding how uh, collective resistance is carried out. So that was... Uh, so I, I, I entered the field uh, very interested in understanding how they maneuver and how you know and how the context also helps to shape their strategies and tactics
1: right you, you've emphasized at a number of points that you, you yourself come from a law and society research background you had the interest in jurisprudence and social policy mm-hmm. and yet so I I wondered then to what extent you were initially thinking about this problem as primarily a legal problem and perhaps whether or not your ideas have, have changed over time, not to preempt too much of the contents of the, the book, but in some ways I read this book as a, a book that addresses many issues other than those issues that are typically within the domain of the law and society research. So was there a shift in the early stages of research in your own thinking about how to approach the material that you've written about so eloquently?
0: Well, I think, um, I mean, you know, the the phrasing or wording of the research questions uh, uh, were refined, that, that was refined over time. Um, but I think the core motivation has always been there. I wanted to look at the strategies and tactics and the role of law in the way they implement, uh, formulate, and carry out these strategies and tactics. I think it's is is always there. I but uh, you know as the field work uh, progressed and I started doing analysis of you know the data coming in, um, it it really uh, the idea of let's say, um, you know, the, the, their strategy of what I call pragmatic resistance really started to, to form and then ideas about how they, um, you know, carry out the politics of rights start to become clearer along the way. So these are questions that I, that, you know, obviously, you know, these were findings that I did not uh, necessarily expect uh, when I first entered the field, but the, the, the central interest on the strategies and tactics, knowing that, you know, they are probably going to be shaped by the legal constraints and also the political norms, had always been there. Yeah. I'm not sure if I actually answering your question, but, um, you know, that's, that, that's how I thought about it. And, you know, along the way, um, Initially, I, you know, uh, I was when I was doing the field work and was doing many of these interviews. I actually was um, trying not to get people to talk directly about you know their idea, thinking about rights. I was trying to get people to talk about how they deal with challenges and problems, how they go about achieving their goals, uh, in a way that may or may not bring up law, and that depends on how the conversation goes. Uh, um, and, but then later on, I realized that you know, um, I would like also to know more specifically given uh, what they think about very common uh, rights-based tactics like litigation, because there was not much mentioned. In fact, not many of these activists... Really brought up litigation in on their own accord in these interviews. Now bear in mind that this was, you know, in the years when the uh, Section three seventy seven A of the Penal Code, uh, those the, the two constitutional cases had not really made it into the courtroom, so litigation was wasn't really on their minds. So I was keen to know. Uh, if they did not bring this up how what the, how then do they think about Is it because they don 't think it's important or they don 't know about it or they just it 's not really in the forefront of their minds so I actually did uh, then co- made a conscious effort um in the interviews if the activists do not and the interviewees did not uh on their own accord bring up litigation, I would ask uh about it and and so in that sense it was you know. About law, more uh, formal law, very specific ways, but at the same time, uh, I was also sh- uh, shaped by what I was seeing uh, as the as the fieldwork uh, evolved.
1: Right, I right. think with with these points where we're delving into some specific and and very important features of the the book but perhaps before we go to questions of 377A litigation constitutional cases and the strategies of pragmatic resistance as you would describe it we can start with um with well, the the, the mon- perhaps in some ways the mundane beginnings of the the book you have a description of a specific event and the mobilizing of the community uh, in Singapore around that event, so maybe it would be a good way to again start the story here, and then we'll move into uh, some of those strategies and issues in more detail.
0: Sure um, well, the book opens with um, an account of what of an event that happened in 1993 in Singapore. It's it's um, It describes uh, the poli- a police raid on what the interview is often described as a gay disco. Actually, it's, it's an ordinary club that uh, on certain nights of the week uh, has uh, a lot of gay patrons. So it's often known as a gay disco or gay club during certain times of the week. And police raid... Uh, were, were, police raids were common in the early 1990s in Singapore on gay businesses, uh, especially, uh, those who operate, uh, at night. And so the, the account is the police, um, comes and raids the, the place. And, uh, typical of them, they ask for identification from the patrons. Um, uh, the patrons who had identification on them, uh, were not were allowed to leave, whereas others who did not have identification them were detained on the pretext of not being able to provide uh, any form of ID and were uh, taken to the police station. And the person who gave this account, uh, my one of my informants, and interviewees, um, was one of those people who had their his ID on him, so he was let go, but he had to go and fetch his. Uh, flatmate's uh, ID because his flatmate was detained and that made the incident got him thinking and it also outraged him that the police could come in and raid uh, gay businesses on you know these regulatory on the pretext of regulatory infractions of uh, you know for noise or maybe overcrowding in other cases and so on so he decided to do some research and he found out that actually the law does not uh, provide for the police to immediately detain somebody who is unable to, to provide the identification. that person is obligated to provide identification, but he, he or she could you know uh, go and fetch it and, 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 and provide it to the police uh, and and so he started a, a small letter writing campaign to write to the police and make known his grievances and This is what that really struck me now. If you compare that to, um, to, uh, police raid on a very well known, uh, bar, which is now a very well known bar in New York, uh, Stonewall, the, uh, consequence of that was there was a, a riot and a lot of street protests against the police's actions. But in this case, it was a very quiet sort of letter writing campaign signed by a few, uh, about 21. Uh, signatories, basically complaining to the police that they had exceeded their legal authority provided by statute to ask for, uh, to detain persons who were unable immediately to provide their identification. Um, And the outcome of this was actually quite interesting because uh, the the police actually uh, uh, responded and actually called this informant of mine and said that we have actually spoken to our uh, rank and file and said that, you know, they can't do this, and we actually we're sorry about our rudeness. It was also written in a letter to him, almost a kind of apology. A um, few things are interesting here as well. The lack of uh, confrontation, outright protest, that's one which I mentioned, and the lack of mention of uh, a violation of rights uh, by the police in this entire account. And the idea that they did not go public—they it was written to the police, and also to the Ministry of Home Affairs, which oversees the police. Um, and and these are some of the some of the beginnings that got me thinking about the strategy that has endured within within the movement by different generations of activists, in the sense that. Their strategy, of course, it, it embodies resistance, which all movements do. Uh, but um, they are uh, at the same time that they try to achieve change incrementally. They also try to maintain. Uh, they tr- also try to make sure that the movement or the group of people do not suffer uh, retaliation from the state. Uh, so it, the question of survival is also at the forefront of their mind. So so hence, you know, looking at the political context, they know that confrontation is out uh, and also um, advocacy about rights very openly would also be something that they need to be careful about doing and, and oftentimes they're discouraged from doing so. Also, you know, coming hand-in-hand uh, hand with um, with the non-confrontation is to give face to the, uh, to the government and, and this means that not not letting the government come across as losing control, losing its authority. So so these are some of the uh, ingredients of uh, the strategy that I saw over the course of more than 20 years in in the movement as well. And I use this account to uh, open in the book because it's a sharp contrast to uh, the more familiar story of the Stonewall riots. Uh, I, but, I, and, and, and me, but also the motivation here is not just to say, oh, this is what happens in an authoritarian state and this is what activists do there and this is what, and in the Stonewall incident, this is how it takes place in, the, in, in an environment like the U.S. where uh, open protest is more accepted or more common uh it 's not this kind of black and white dichotomy. I also use the the contrast between the two, uh, i mean the the, uh, the the just juxtaposition of these two to talk about how uh context really matters to how protest is carried out uh much of the scholarship focuses uh on social movements also in law society more valorizes the kind of open uh public forms of collective resistance and whereas the covert more subtle forms of resistance are often seen as precursors or just foundations that will lead up one day to the open forms of protest whereas um, the the point I was trying to make is that actually uh, collective resistance can take place in a way that it's covert and Part of that is because it's informed by the political context and how activists exercise uh, their agency. And, um, and you know, the, the account that I use to open the book is an illustration of that versus, you know, the account that we see or the narrative of Stonewall. It's a contextualized one as well, one that emerged out of a very tumultuous 1960s where people when the people participated in Stonewall and Gay Liberation afterwards, uh, were very much shaped or influenced by the very vibrant, open forms of protest of the 1960s in the U.S.
1: And and you describe this contingent strategizing as pragmatic resistance. This is a term which is recurrent throughout the text. Um, would you like to say a little bit more about what that term means to you and and why it matters for this study and perhaps also for comparative scholarship on social movements
0: sure um, i you know this was the impetus for this came from many of these interviews and a pattern that emerged from it in which. Activists, um, independent of each other, talk about pushing boundaries and uh, towing the line. And this really is the essence of pragmatic resistance, which really is a strategy that seeks to not only advance the movement in incremental ways, um, the pushing boundaries aspect of it, but also the... Uh, but also towing the line, which is the maintenance of survival, making sure that the movement does not suffer from uh, state retaliation to the point of being clamped down or or shut down. Uh, And so it's this constant tension or balance between towing the line and pushing boundaries uh, uh, that captures the essence of this uh, strategy. Uh, If you... Push boundaries too much, you become, uh, you could cross uh, the line and that would be perhaps too dangerous and jeopardize the survival of the movement. But if you are too, uh, um, you told the line too much, too abiding, um, then you're not going to make much of a progress as a movement. So, what, where, where, where is the line? And that line or those lines are actually informed by not just uh, formal laws, such as illegal restrictions on uh, civil political liberties, but they're also informed by um, uh, a set of political norms that emerge from the way activists talk about how they interact with the state. So I've mentioned some of these before, uh, non-confrontation uh, coming across as not jeopardizing the uh, social harmony in, in the eyes of the government. Of course, non-confrontation is also, you know, subjective is what the state thinks is non-confrontational. So non-confrontation, um, uh, m- maintaining the appearance of not jeopardizing social harmony, and then um, maintaining or adhering to or being law-abiding, uh, upholding, sense of legal legitimacy. Activists talk about how law has been used very successfully by the state uh, to cultivate this idea that uh, law abidance gives you legitimacy and if you are disobedient to the law or you you are a lawbreaker, you, you, it delegitimizes you as an activist, as a dissident, and your cause as well. So legal legitimacy. And then the fourth set, uh, fourth type of norm that they talk about Is um, not coming across as jeopardizing or threatening the status the the uh, ruling party's uh, hegemony. So these are these are the four norms, as well as you know, and and along with the formal legal restrictions, they make up this uh, these lines and boundaries. Activists try to push simultaneously as they try to toe the line uh, as well, and. Um, this actually, um, the idea of pragmatic resistance to me is very much in, in very much informed by um, yeah, sociological uh, studies about socio, uh, sociology of culture, for instance, about how people interact with their surroundings and symbols around them, and um, and uh, adapt or. Uh, respond to them accordingly. Um, So it has that uh, affinity with with some studies in sociology of culture and which has has some roots in uh, the American school of of, of, of pragmatism. So that's how the term comes about. It it doesn't really actually have anything to do with the fact that people would say, oh, these activists therefore are practical, they are pragmatic. It doesn't have have that affinity. Uh, It wasn't... From there, but it's more it, it, the, the term that I use actually more uh, influenced by um, you know learnings from uh, sociology or culture and, 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 and you know, the uh, idea that a- activists uh, interact with their surroundings and symbols and signs around it and respond uh, accordingly. So this is so this idea of pragmatic resistance is also not static, meaning that what we saw in the early 1990s. Uh, in the example of this um, police raid, which, by the way, is is uh, the raid on rascals, oftentimes called the Rascals incident, that was the name of the disco. Um, in in those early nineteen in the days of the early nineteen nineties, uh, the strategy, the tactics that you see carried out uh, under this rubric of pragmatic resistance is perhaps a little bit more timid compared to. What happened? What is happening now in Singapore in terms of the gay rights uh, movement? A little bit more open and much more uh, assertive in the way they make demands. But I make the claim that they are actually all within the trajectory of pragmatic resistance because they still fulfill the core essence of the strategy, which is pushing boundaries t- and towing the lines and adhering to these. Uh, various political norms. What has changed, though, is that they have strategically adapted the strategy over time, based on their experiences that, based on the experiences that they had accumulated uh, over the years, and also based on you know how they interpret the political environment, how they interpret politicians as having perhaps shifted in their um, attitudes and in the way they respond to. Uh, activism in general, and also to the issue of homosexuality.
1: Well, before we go to the phases of strategic adaptation, which you, you set out very nicely across a number of chapters of the book, I felt like your your articulation of the political norms that people are working with in in Singapore was a very powerful. On the legal restrictions side, I wonder if you can say a little bit more generally about for for listeners who aren't familiar with the Singaporean situation, about what sort of legal restrictions um, anybody in Singapore might encounter if they engage in um, public movements or activities that in one way or another might uh, threaten uh, the interests of state agencies or other concerned persons, and then we'll go to the phases um, after that. So, in in short, what does authoritarianism mean in terms of legal restrictions in Singapore today?
0: Uh, Right. Um, One example would be the restrictions on the freedom of association. So, there is um, laws on that. Uh, For instance, the Societies Act, which actually is as uh, a piece of legislation inherited from uh, the British colonial government. It requires um, any uh, group with more than 10 members to be legally registered with the government under this Act. And what that means is that, um, you know, the mission, the objectives of the group are subject to scrutiny and approval. And, of course, the government can choose to not approve uh, certain uh, groups of societies that they deem to contravene uh, the act. Um, and this could be on grounds of, let's say, public order uh, or public morality or national security. And, of course, you know, um, as scholars who study social movements or legal scholars, we know how broad these terms can be defined, especially in uh, non-liberal uh, democratic contexts. Um so that's one. And of course, and, and, and the consequence of that is uh, such groups, uh, if they're non-registered, the leader uh, would be subject to uh, legal sanctions, which can include imprisonment. Uh, and uh, participants also could be subject to legal sanctions as well. Uh, the law has changed a little bit over the years. Um, There are now two categories. One is the kind that uh, automatically register, which means they don't have to go through an approval process, but these are actually, most of the time, these groups are innocuous groups like sports associations, sports clubs, and that kind of stuff. But groups uh, that work on sexual orientation, this is an explicit term in the Amended Societies Act, groups that work on issues like human rights or politics, they have to be uh, subject to approval, and that means it's not an automatic registration. So that's one constraint. And not being able to be registered legally as an entity um, has other ramifications. for instance, it would hamper one 's ability to raise funds because your organization does not have a legal personality, uh, which means that many local or local companies or local organizations others may be a little bit more concerned about uh, supporting uh, this organization uh, so that 's freedom association. Um, freedom of um, assembly. There is now this law that was passed in two thousand nine. It's called the Public Order Act, that um, constrains the ability of uh, members of public to assemble and uh, you know make uh, claims publicly. For and so and and with along with that in the act gives police white powers. So, for instance, um, the police even has the power to order one single individual to move on uh, in the public area if that person seemed to be perhaps going you know, to uh, uh, be demonstrating or making a protest. Um, and um, also give police uh, great surveillance powers under the act. Um, and of course, assembly is very much restricted in Singapore. You, you, you need, uh, police permits to be able to assemble or have a parade or demonstration. Now, of course, you know, in places that uh, have greater, uh, have given greater freedom to assembly, you know, groups also sometimes need permits to be able to close streets or march down certain areas. But oftentimes, uh, in this context, you would see that permits are uh, denied on the basis of, uh, you know, the content. For instance, it could be seen as too political or too uh, oppositional and so on. So not just on uh, looking at the basis of, uh, you know, uh, not just regulating the time on, on venue of, of the protests and so on. And And the only place that has some semblance of assembly where there is no need for prior application to the police, is Honglin Park, which is a public park that the government actually uh, made an exception for public assembly. But even there, which means that if I, if I and a group of people want to uh, speak up about an issue, I can go to Honglin Park and I do not need to um, um, submit an application for approval. But I do need, as an organizer, to pre-register with the authorities and uh, meaning that I therefore uh, agree to preset conditions. So, for instance, I should not be talking about uh, issues or ma- making speech that could be deemed as racially or re- religiously sensitive. Um, so that's assembly. And then on speech, um, well, public talks, the default position is that you do need to get licensing. Uh, there are exceptions. So things like, if you're indoor public speech, and it's, the speaker is Singaporean, you know, there's an exemption, but of course the exemption is also on the basis of the preset conditions, uh, that you can't be too political speaking about racially or religiously sensitive issues, but whether or not, how, what is deemed to be racially or religiously sensitive, as we know, is, is in the eyes of the authorities. Um, So these are the various types of, uh, well, just some examples of constraints on basic civil political liberties that do um, play a role in shaping the ability of activists, be they gay rights activists or others, to mobilize.
1: So Hong Lim Park, to which you're referring, comes out um, as a very much a central part of the narrative in the late phases of the mobilizing of the um, Singapore's gay movement. But there are a number of phases preceding that and much of the story of the book is taken up with these earlier phases. So perhaps we can work our way through them beginning with uh, what you describe as the timorous beginnings before 1997, then uh, cyber organizing, 97 to 2000 transition, 2000 to 2005, and um, in the park, coming out and mobilizing in the open from 2005.
0: Okay, so timorous beginnings would be in the early 1990s. That's where I trace the emergence of the movement to um, the the late, the second half of the 90s. Uh, It's timorous or timid because at this in, in, during this phase of the movement, you see some characteristics. One is that there were only a few consistent or core activists within the movement, uh, and they were not really making claims that directly asked for reform from the state or changes. It was very inward looking, focusing on issues of uh, you know uh, self-acceptance among Uh, gay members of their community uh, or things like consciousness raising, uh, providing support for one another, things like that. Um, And they were also timid in the sense that when they were facing uh, police surveillance or media attention, they um, avoided it or ran away. (laughs) For instance, they were actually... uh, uh, there was tabloid there was a tabloid newspaper that was very uh, it was trying to expose them, trying to expose them as a deviant group doing something subversive and so they completely diffused the situation and and would not engage the media directly. This is going to be in sharp contrast to the later phases of the movement when activists actually actively Engaged the media and loved publicity, <laughs> um, and and, it's, and also in terms of surveillance. When they so during this phase, there was um, one of the main groups which I called the coalition in the book, were meeting for you know uh, once every few weeks uh, at at a theater space, and then they eventually realized that they were under surveillance, and this was particularly scary because. For them, they were not, um, registered. And also, given what had happened in Singapore in the late 80s when, uh, the government had put, uh, many social activists on detention without trial for other, for, for working on other social justice issues, there's that memory of that, very recent memory of it. And so people were really scared. Um, but their, uh, their tactic at the time was actually not to become public and and, uh, com- and and deal with the matter in that way. Instead, they quietly tried to register themselves to become a legal entity, and of course, that did not uh, come out favorably. So uh, they were actually denied registration uh, on the basis that they are a group that contravened uh, public morality and public order. So that was the uh, the the very timorous or very timid beginnings. Of the of the movement, then we moved into the cyberspace era. Um, the you know, having been under surveillance, many members, you know, ordinary members, who would come on on these, uh, come to these regular meetings, were scared, and so there, uh, the numbers uh, dwindled. Uh, people in the core leadership of the coalition were also very concerned, and some of them also dropped out. Uh, And so it came to a point and then, you know, having been denied registration, you know, they did not dare to reconvene as a group that had physical, had a physical meeting space because, you know, (laughs) the joke was that in the past, before they registered, they could say that we are meeting to get ready for registration. But now that the state has known that you have tried to register and then uh, been denied, they felt that they couldn't still go ahead and and. And keep meeting up, so um, uh, the the group uh, sort of um, fizzled away. Um, this actually coincided with the uh, gaining popularity of the internet and the growing availability uh, in in public uh, in, in by the late 1990s in Singapore. So. Um, the, the movement actually, in a way, moved onto the internet. So people started, were able to, felt that they were able to congregate, quote unquote, in, in cyberspace and interact and in, in meet in the unknown ways and also organize as groups in cyberspace. Um, so it was an era in which, uh, and this cyberspace era would be in the late 90s until the early 2000s. This was their primary way of organizing and meeting. Of course, you know, people might talk about meeting up and then they do meet up, get get together privately, uh, go on outings or, you know, social gatherings. But a lot of this organizing work and outreach work was done on the Internet. Most of it was done on the Internet during that period, late 90s to early 2000s. Um, then there was a transition phase in the early 2000s, uh, in which you would still, still see a lot of groups working primarily on the internet, but then you start to see some activists, some groups becoming a little bit bolder and, uh, poking their heads out again and trying to organize in other ways besides being on the internet and being more public, um. The way one activist described it was, you know, in those years when we were sort of hiding away in cyberspace, there was no sting in the tail. The government didn't really come after them, and, and um, they felt that they were left alone for a while. And also they noticed that, uh, you know, there were certain um, statements being uttered by the government that perhaps signaled that you know, homosexuality wasn't as completely persecuted or tabooed In Singapore, so, you know, for instance, they pointed to to a Lee Kuan Yew statement in the late 1990s, where, of course, he wasn't, you know, outspoken about supporting, uh, gay rights, but he's uttered something to the effect that, uh, the government does, will not go around persecuting, actively persecuting, uh, uh, gay people. And, and, and just little, little things like that. Uh, and then the um, that, th- that they felt was a signal that perhaps it's time to sort of, uh, try something bolder. Then in 2003, another statement by the second prime minister, uh, Go Chok Tong, who talked about who actually spoke to Time magazine and mentioned that, you know, the civil service actually does not discriminate against gay people. Um, Well, there's no, you know, I couldn't find any written policy about this, but the fact that he made a statement like this in in international media was another signal that people felt maybe that, you know, the position of the government isn't as stridently against uh, homosexuality. That shifted at least a little bit. So this was an era, therefore the transition era of the early two thousands, where activists started to come out and do, and and be a little bit more open about organizing and holding events and engaging uh, the government. So the coalition once again uh, tried to register. Now this is quite in contrast to what happened in the uh, in the late in the 1990s when they tried to register for the first time this time they did not feel that they needed to be legal in order to continue doing their work this time they really wanted to test to see how the government would respond to them after the you know, the the, uh, the prime minister go had spoken about civil servants uh, about the civil service being accepting of of, of gays And so, uh, you know, they applied for the registration, again, denied on similar grounds. But this time, uh, the activists wrote, uh, uh, issued a public statement. Um, They were also featured in a news report in the local newspaper about this matter. And so instead of uh, running away from media attention, they actually courted media attention and wanted to make known their grievances, then in this case being denied registration uh, again by the government. And um, so you can see a re-emergence of, uh, of, of uh, open forms of or rather emergence of open forms of engagement and, uh, and and in a way that shifted from the more timid approaches in the um, early 1990s. Then The transition period just, uh, well, set a foundation for what is still uh, an era, uh, the contemporary era of more uh, open forms of mobilization. So from the mid-2000s onward, you see a lot of, uh, you see the movement actually coming out into the open and activists, Uh, open about the fact that they are gay activists, or even about the fact that they are activists, um, which was not the case in the early 1990s. You know, people would not readily identify themselves in the media as being an activist or a gay activist. Now, um, late 2000s, they're happy to speak to the media and they want to uh, speak about the issues. Uh, So from the mid-2000s onwards, you see more open and growing number of campaigns that involve not only um, you know core leaders in the movement but also you see a diversity of organizations you see younger people in the movement you also see uh straight allies who are also leaders within the gay movement or have tried to take on some form of organizing or leadership role versus in the early 1990s when there are only a few handful of people who were in the midst, in the thick of things. So by the end, and also in the mid-2000s onwards, it wasn't just, uh, you know, the movement's constituents, meaning uh, gay and lesbians who are... Participating in the movement or giving it support uh, by the late 2000s, uh, people who identify identified as straight uh, beyond the gay community were supporting the movement so you can see this in several uh, major events, like um, the ping dot uh, which was which is a, which, which is a, an annual public rally to show support for the local gay and lesbian community. You see people who come to this event who are not, who do not identify themselves as gay, straight, you know, they do not identify themselves as LGBT, but they say they are friends or family members of people who are LGBT. Uh, and then also there was this event in 2007, the repeal 377A petition to the government, to the legislature, to repeal the provision, Section three seven seven a of the Penal Code, which criminalizes quote unquote uh, gross indecency between men. Um, that legal campaign, that legal petition, was signed not only by uh, people from the gay community, but were also, you know, parents and siblings and friends, co workers. Of people in the local gay community, so over so in recent years, you start to see that growth of the movement in terms of the types of support it was getting, the types of allies it was getting, and the number of activists and the more open nature of engagement that they were involved in. And of course, you know, right now um, there are two cases that are pending judgment in the Court of Appeal in Singapore. Which is challenging the constitutionality of Section 377A of the Penal Code. This kind of open uh, litigation in the courtroom, um, in the old days, would be seen as too confrontational because they are actually taking the government to court. That's one, there's a layperson's way of interpreting the situation. And now uh, activists feel that. That, you know, there's a right moment to do this. Whether or not the court will rule in the in in their favor is still up in the air. Um, but uh, again, you see their way that you see how you know the the, the, the movement itself has evolved uh, over time uh, up to this point, and it's still in line with the notion of of, of pragmatic resistance because they adapted that strategy based on the changing interpretation. Uh, a bit based on their interpretation of changing political conditions, and now is in a conducive moment to, to litigate on this matter. And also, activists themselves, the younger ones, and also those who have been in the movement and, and gone through different phases of it, um, have learned from the past and have, you know, now are making decisions. Uh, differently because pragmatic resistance is not about being structurally determined by what's going on but also uh, accounts for um, how activists themselves make uh, decisions and therefore exercise the agency.
1: So what I'd really like to ask, which is not part of the book, but you might have some thoughts about it, is then where to for the movement next? And does the use of this uh, pragmatic resistance as an analytical framework provide offer any uh, possible explanations as to, to how the movement might proceed, or is it really a question of contingency, of the larger political circumstances in which these people are active and um, perhaps in that regard you might like to point briefly to one or two um, specific examples of how the movement is mobilizing in the open today and what it might do next or here for instance i'm looking at this eye-catching, colorful cover with the photograph of the uh, pink okay. dot. Um, you might like to say a little bit more about what the pink dot involved and how it symbolizes the openness of the movement before we close sure. the interview.
0: Well, let me talk about the, the example of pink dot as uh, encapsulating a o- more open form of uh, uh, more open type type of tactic, but still within pragmatic resistance. Then I answer your other question about the future. Um, well, Ping Dot. Well, just now I mentioned uh, Hong Lin Park and how it's an exception to the to the controls on freedom assembly. Uh, but of course, Hong Lin Park comes with certain rules that you have to confine your assembly within the park and abide by preset conditions. So when this um um. Exemption came around in late two thousand and eight. Um, you know, activists, the first few activists who who noticed this said, "Why don't we do something like a pride parade or a rally in the park, but within the confines of the park?" Um, there was a lot of negotiations and discussion among them about what to do because, number one, they thought that well. A demonstration within the park going round and round doesn 't quite make sense because when you have a demonstration it's sort of connotes and linear <laughs> progression from one point to the next, not going round and round the park so and also they've you know they felt that the idea of protests and demonstrations have been uh, vilified through by you know the prosecution of those who have tried to assemble or hold protests. Uh, in contravention of a legal restriction. So that is there's a lack of legal legitimacy in the acts of protest. So they were concerned about whether people show up and how they will come across. So finally, somebody said, why don't we just try this new idea of a ping dot where it's not a protest, not procession, you just come to the part wearing ping and we'll take photographs. And so it's it's showing support for the local gay community. So it was a very non-threatening. They packaged it as a very non-threatening way of 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 uh, assembling and getting together. And so when you look at it in that sense, um, it is actually pushing boundaries of what of you know what. Of the political norm about non-confrontation, in the sense that you have a group of people, and the numbers to these days amount um, to twenty-five thousand in the park, um, is a sign of, of strong support and in a way um, against, uh, you know, the official stance about still criminalizing homosexuality and seeing still seeing it as not acceptable in mainstream society, despite the government's uh, softer stance these days about not actively persecuting. Uh, gay people. Um, it, so it pushes that and also pushes the idea of what assembly is because when they hold ping dot, they take photographs and particularly they take area photographs and then they post it on the internet. So in a way, it pushes beyond the confines of the park where, uh, you know, people can, and can look at the, 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 the the, the, the visuals and, uh, and, and you know see on the internet uh, beyond you know what is physically demarcated along the boundaries of the park, but at the same time, and this is how it's also it's how it meets the the essence of uh, pragmatic resistance is that they're very law abiding. They do not. They never ever broke out of the confines of the park. Uh, they 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 register the police. They, um, then they they make sure that they abide by the rules and also. Um, that, uh, they do not come across as confrontation. The, the, the Q&A, the, sorry, the FAQs for the, for Ping always emphasizes that they are not a protest. So this is a very example, a very strong example of pragmatic resistance, of towing the lines and pushing boundaries. So I'm gonna answer next your question about the future, uh, of, uh, is it, uh, what happens next if the law is, uh, repealed? Is it right?
1: The law is part of it, and what else do you see about the the prospects and possibilities for this movement? And perhaps uh, more generally, uh, might there be implications for this notion of authoritarianism as it applies to Singapore?
0: Well, I think that I don't want to say that the loss, the outcome of these two cases, will be, uh, you know overall determining the future of the movement but it will have some significant influence if let's say the law is the courts uphold section 377a it would more or less foreclose the possibility of uh, decriminalization for a while um parliament will unlikely change its position um for a while as well um And so then what's next for a movement that is unable to get the law repealed? Um, Of course, you can keep working on it and then try another time, you know, several years down the road. Um, In the meanwhile, you know, uh, I'm sure that the work on self-acceptance, on social acceptance, all of that will still continue. Um, I don't see that changing, actually. Um, But you know, if the law is actually removed, struck down, however you call it, um, then perhaps you might see more uh, efforts put into further legal reform. So things like maybe uh, changing the censorship rules about portraying homosexuality in mainstream media, maybe uh, starting to change policy on uh, sex education, which... Now, actually, requires uh, sex education trainers to tell students that homosexuality is illegal. Uh, so things like that, you might start to see more reform on the policy and, and uh, regu- regulatory front. Um, these issues have not been mo- have not been able to achieve much traction at the moment because of the uh, the existence of Section three seven seven A. So that's how I see things as possibly changing. But at the same time, you know. Um the community outreach and the social acceptance angle will continue, whether or not the law has changed i that that's how I would see it happening, and also perhaps you know the the movement itself needs to start to address um among themselves issues of privileging gay men and uh and and being and gay men and chinese. English-speaking, uh, you know, and like movements you see elsewhere, um, you know, it, uh, there tends to be um, privileging of, uh, or giving more attention to issues that that can more of course focus tends to be on the majority uh, group. In this case, English-speaking Chinese. Uh, Perhaps more middle class within the movement. So it start, needs to start to address how to deal with uh, the unique issues perhaps are faced by gays and lesbians who do not belong to these uh, do not bear these features like working class, Chinese speaking, Malay speaking, uh, other dialect speaking groups, women, more older uh, members of the gay community who may not necessarily identify with, movement, with campaigns like Pink dot and so on. So then, then they probably need to start addressing these sorts of uh, issues within themselves, within the movement as it grows and becomes more successful. Um, and, you know, I I, I think that the strategy, which has been pragmatic resistance, the way I call it, will probably continue um, unless... You know, there's a drastic change in the legal and political landscape. Now, one of the things that I've actually pointed out in the book is that at the end is that, yeah, it, it, the state also participates in this, in the pragmatic resistance because there's a certain understanding of how uh, you know, members of the civil society in Singapore actually engage government engage public officials and so if one tries to break away from that norm um, you know it would be quite interesting to see how authorities will respond because they're sort of broken away from the script of pragmatic resistance and that's not what I see yet in with the gay rights movement in Singapore um, but, but by adhering continuously to the script of pragmatic resistance, one could say you're going to be risking routinization so that you're actually just uh, continuing to make these changes incrementally. And some critics would say that that's just not enough. Um, and you know, could be lulled into a sense of complacency. I'm not, given that there are a, a, a mountain of issues that the gay rights movement in Singapore needs to continue, continue to address. I am not sure how much complacency they could find themselves falling into. But that's always a risk of, you know, not being bolder with the tactics uh, as well. So, I mean, things are, in a way, up in the air because of the two cases. But in many ways, it's also probably going to be business as usual for a long time because the work on social acceptance and, and uh, self-acceptance are always very important. And the work on... Don't use this. I sometimes avoid using this term of of coming out, or at least being open about one's sexuality. um, is is quite important in the Singaporean context. So that because that's linked to uh, generating a sense of social acceptance. When you know somebody who's gay or lesbian, it helps to change perceptions or prejudices. Yeah, so I I hope to see that go on. (laughs) Uh,
1: Lynette, there are so many other questions. I would like to ask you, but um, we are out of time. We've taken up a great deal of your time. And so before closing, having asked you about the the future of the movement, I'd like to ask you about your own future. What are you working on right now and what can we expect to see in the next few years?
0: Well, um, I am still following the uh, gay rights movement in Singapore. Uh, The book ends with the two cases going to court. Um, And so I'm I'm doing a more confined study following the the lawsuits and the activists involved in it, trying to understand the social process involved in getting the case to court and then the outcome and so on. So that's a, a project that's a continuation directly from the book. Uh, separately, I'm looking at, I'm carrying out field work right now, uh, ongoing, on looking at the emergence of a sexual minority rights movement in Myanmar and uh, at the time of political transition. So in a way, it's uh, somewhat related to my research interests on law and social movements, but in a, quite a different context and taking a slightly different approach in trying to understand how... A movement mobilizes openly mobilizes the language of human rights in a context where that discourse has been uh, very much uh, repressed or alienated. Uh, so that's a uh, that's a separate project that I'm looking at, and uh, in the long in the longer run, I hope to. Uh, I'm working with a collaborator. Look at a more comparative project, looking at uh, various sites in Asia, uh, comparing. There are uh, different forms of LGBT activism, which is a rising phenomenon in, in the Asian region.
1: It sounds like there is, well, there are many great opportunities for comparative work there, and um, certainly I and I'm sure many other people are going to look forward to your your research output in the next few years. So, um, Lynette Chua, again, I'd like to thank you for speaking with us about your book, Mobilizing Gay Singapore. Thank you. And um, thank you also to everyone for listening. Until next time, I'm Nick Cheeseman for New Books in Southeast Asian Studies.